Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Associate Editor Dr. John Crispino is joined by colleagues Dr. Karen Hoffmeister and Dr. Martha Solovisner. They discuss the changing role of megakaryocytes and platelet formation and its effect on hemolytic disorders. My name is John Crispino. I work at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. The theme of this series is recent advances in understanding the biology of megakaryocytes. I wanted to publish this series to bring our readership up to date on how we think about megakaryocytes and platelet production. The megakaryocytes are fascinating cells that have historically been thought of as simply platelet-producing cells that reside in the bone marrow. Recent advances in several aspects of megakaryocyte biology have challenged this notion and lead us now to broader understanding of this lineage. Recent studies, including single-cell RNA sequencing, have shown that there are many subsets of megakaryocytes, including immunopoised, niche-poised, and platelet-producing, and also that megakaryocytes reside in the lung. Dr. Italiano's review covers these topics, as well as the mechanisms of platelet production. Dr. Hoffmeister's review helps us understand the role of glycan modifications in thrombopoiesis and highlights new areas, new insights in this area. Dr. Solovisner's review examines the differences between neonatal and adult megakaryopoiesis and the research that increases our understanding of developmental regulation and neonatal platelet disorders. Finally, Dr. DePaula's review covers the genetics of inherited thrombocytopenia. Our knowledge of inherited thrombocytopenia has dramatically increased through sensitive next-generation sequencing technology. I've been extremely interested in megakaryocyte biology since my postdoctoral fellowship, and I've been following this field, and the remarkable advances that we've made are ones that our hematology community needs to know about. My name is Karen Hoffmeister. I work at Varsity Blood Research Institute. The article highlights, I think, post-translational modifications, which are, I think, still largely an unknown in the hematopoiesis or hematology field, and particularly when it comes to thermopoiesis, megakaryocytopoiesis. I think the highlight of glycans as one post-translational modification really depicts, I think, the wide variety of changes just in glycosylation affecting platelet count, the hematopoietic niche environment, and megakaryocytes at large. There are phenotypes which are complex, but are observed in, I think, many, many disorders, including myeloproliferative neoplasms, from thrombocytopenia, immune thrombocytopenia, to even cancer-related disorders or hematopoietic cancers at large. So I think there is an opportunity as well to learn more, to further our knowledge, and possibly discover pathways we can use to develop new therapeutic approaches to any, if that's thrombocytopenia, uh, isolated thrombocytopenia or really cancer disease. I'm really interested in megakaryocytes because they're unusual and they are multitasking. And the multitasking, I think, is really what fascinates me and how glycans or the post-translational modifications, including glycans, can contribute to the multitasking roles of megakaryocytes and then at some point platelets once they're produced. 
I think blood production is at the forefront of hematology. We need to understand mechanistically really how blood is produced and what factors um, contribute to this. So there's genetics, but it is also further down the line and not that linear, I think, the post-translation modification. I think all of it is important. All of it plays a role in our understanding and furthering our knowledge to beat disease, whatever it is, benign disease or what we call benign um, or cancer. I think we need to understand every factor there is as good as we can get. So I think that is essentially what guides my research towards that and why I think it's important to hematology to contribute with another piece of knowledge, not just from the inside, the genetic point of view, but to what the gene ends up to be on the outside of the cell and and how it affects blood production, blood cell removal. I think all of it is important to put some attention on glycans as a big contributor to disease and in health, how normal hematopoiesis is regulated. Pay attention to possibly genes you may normally not pay attention to because they're perceived as maybe not important or not, you don't know much about. One example is GNE mutations, which pop up all over our planet right now as contributors. It's a salic acid producer, producing enzyme. And worldwide, more and more uh, thromocytopenia patients are discovered having a genetic disorder in that particular gene, which really regulates sugars or glycans. So I think that's number one. Uh, Number two, I think the enormous variety of the post-translation modifications contributing to cell niche environment interactions in the hematopoietic space to each cell, including the megakaryocytes, how it behaves if it doesn't have the proper glycosylation, sugar production, and how it affects really blood cell count. So do not just assume that it's a genetic disorder, but maybe really look at post-translation modifications when you analyze your data, patients, just to bring it up front to our, let's say, diagnostic and how we think about diagnosis, how do we think about, you know, and identifying other factors contributing to what we see in a patient. So when I started, as I said, as a postdoc working on glycans, it was a something completely unheard of, I think, and nobody really put the post-translational modifications into equation of megakaryocyte and platelets. But over the years, I have had the joy of meeting so many investigators, getting more interested and providing new insight and findings into how gene, from the gene perspective, gene alterations to just modifications of the glycans or the sugars on the plated surface, the megakosite surface, contribute to disease, from immune thrombocytopenia to thrombocytopenia, but also to more proliferative diseases, monoproliferative diseases, uh, and other cancers. Essentially, that development, that highlighting, there was a joy to beginning postdoc, to seeing so many investigators and suddenly finding interest and really important data to, to move our science further, to understand more of how that contributes to day-to-day hematopoiesis and disease circumstances. There's a perception that glycans are incredibly complex, And they are, but I don't think that they are 
more complex than genetic alterations. And I'm hopeful that with time, with discovery and with knowledge gained, we will learn more and, and more and more investigation will be guided towards that particular um, science, I, I hope, and we discover that it's not as complicated as most believe. The words are incredibly complicated we are using, but it's it's something which is tackable and even therapeutically approachable. So that's, I think, the for me, the, the big takeaway, um, what I would like to, especially younger investigators, to think about. It's not as complicated as you think. Dr. Hoffmeister, could you comment on your prediction for future advances in the field? The future advances in the glycobiology in hematopoiesis? I'm hopeful. And as I try to reiterate that I do see so many new science being done in hematopoiesis concerning important discoveries for disease, I'm hopeful that it becomes actually the new era of signaling. I'm still waiting for a PCR machine to produce glycans, but at some point, if we get there, that will be wonderful. So I'm hopeful that it will increase exponentially the technologies in glycobiology increase and and become more and more approachable. So with that, I am seriously hopeful that we will implement that particular science more and more into our day-to-day operations as scientists and physicians for diagnostic research and so forth. My name is Martha Solovisner, and I work at Boston Children's Hospital. My review focused on the differences between fetal and adult myocardiopoiesis And I think most hematologists and most researchers don't usually think as much about fetuses and, you know, neonates because they're such a unique population. But, you know, we need to think about premature neonates who are born in our days as early as a 22-week gestation. So in the middle of a normal gestation is fetuses, fetal human beings who prematurely left the intrauterine environment. And thrombocytopenia is very common among neonates, just as it is in in adult diseases. And the more premature the baby, the more predisposed this baby is to be thrombocytopenic. So to understand the fundamentals, the basics of how these babies produce platelets is first and foremost important to manage babies, to treat babies appropriately, and to understand the implications and the reason for this predisposition for thrombocytopenia. So my first motivation was really to understand neonatal thrombocytopenia. But in reality, this topic has broad implications beyond that. I think, you know, in addition to having frequent thrombocytopenia, there are also diseases of myocardiopoiesis and platelet production that either exclusively affect neonates and are not seen in older children or adults, like Down syndrome, TMD, uh, transient malloproliferative disorder, or diseases that also affect older children and adults, but have different clinical manifestations that we need to be aware of in neonates, uh, like congenital amyacarocytic thrombocytopenia that can present differently in neonates than in adults. I do think this understanding is important. We used to think for a long time that neonatal megakaryocytes, which have very unique biological characteristics, were just immature. They proliferate at a high rate, they're small, they have low ploidy, and it just went with the concept of general immaturity. 
And I think now we understand that they are not immature. They're just different because they serve the unique physiological needs of this uh, developmental period. They have to meet the needs of fetus and a neonate, which are very different from the needs of an adult. And therefore, they are molecularly different. Their interactions with their microenvironment is different. Uh, and understanding these critical differences is the basics for being able to diagnose and manage neonates. I actually think this is really important beyond pediatric hematology and the understanding and management of neonates. First, if you think about core blood transplantation, which is fairly common in children for diseases that require bone marrow transplant, uh, there is a significant delayed platelet engraftment compared to a bone marrow transplantation. And this is because we are transplanting, you know, fetal neonatal hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. So we know from studies in our laboratory and others that they give rise to neonatal phenotypic megakaryocytes that behave differently and don't mature as much, don't become as polyploid. So older children and adults who receive neonatal cells have features that are related to these developmental differences in the cells they are receiving. The second important concept is the desire to generate in vitro produced platelets. So there is a lot of effort at a lot of laboratories around the world trying to produce in vitro derived platelets. And these platelets, the source for these platelets is mostly IPS cells or umbilical cord blood cells, which are again neonatal and fetal sources that give rise to platelets that have fetal neonatal characteristics or embryonic characteristics. So once again, for this very important field in hematology, understanding the developmental differences in mechanical and platelet production, and also the functional differences in the platelets that they produce is extremely important. So I think it has broad importance beyond just fetuses and neonates. I think, number one, that neonates are not small adults. This is a cliche, but it's, it's very true. They are physiologically uh, very different humans, uh, and their megakaryocytes and platelets are adapted to meet the unique physiological needs of these humans. So neonatal megakaryocytes, like I said, proliferate very rapidly, give rise to low ploidy and small megakaryocytes, but they're functionally mature and they produce platelets at these low ploidy levels. And this allows babies to populate their very rapidly expanding bone marrow with, you know, more megakaryocytes and more hematopoietic stem cells, while at the same time generating enough platelets to increase the platelet mass. So to meet these two needs, it needs to be a physiologically different process. And what we see are the you know, molecular mechanisms that facilitate this. And the interaction also with a different microenvironment, which is the fetal liver uh, or the yolk sac, where the signals uh, that mediate the interaction between the megakaryocytes and the environment are different. So I think this is broadly an important concept. I think a second important concept is that the platelets generated from these megakaryocytes are also different. And this has implications, not just for in vitro derived platelets, but also because babies 
when they are transfused, they are transfused with adult platelets that are functionally quite strikingly different. And surprisingly, randomized studies have shown that babies who receive platelet transfusions have higher mortality and morbidity than those that are not transfused or that are transfused at, low, at lower levels. Understanding what the differences are beyond the myocaricides into the platelets that they produce is also extremely important to solve these mysteries and treat these babies. And then thirdly, I think that another important takeaway is the heterogeneity of the myocaricides. We used to think of myocaricides as platelets, as this homogeneous cell population that had one major function, which was to produce platelets that contribute to hemostasis. And now we find out through single-cellar and ASIC studies that it's actually a very heterogeneous population. And surprisingly, this heterogeneity is present at all stages of development. The yolk stack myocaricides are heterogeneous. The fetal liver myocaricides are heterogeneous. Adult bone marrow are. And while the different authors give the populations different names, everybody identifies three major subtypes that are present at all stages of development, as early as the yolk sac. You know, one that produces platelets, the platelet producing myocaricide, one that is responsible for interactions with the niche, uh, and another one that has characteristics of immune cells. So it's striking to me now to think about how heterogeneous myocaricides are and how different functions far away from hemostasis are fulfilled but subspecialized populations and that they are present at all stages of development, even though the transcriptome and the specifications, the functional specifications within each population is different at the different stages, again, to meet the needs of the fetus and neonate versus the adult. One of the most striking things has been this recognition of the different functions that subpopulations of myocaricides fulfill. It's, you know, not all myocaricides are created equal. Having said that, the immune myocaricides in the fetus is different functionally than the immune myocaricide in the adult. I do think that has also been an explosion of new understanding of the mechanisms underlying Down syndrome, TMD, which is the most well-studied, you know, developmental stage-specific myocaricide and platelet disorder. I think in the very recent years, there has been an explosion of a better understanding of the disease pathogenesis, the role of microRNAs, novel transcription factors like RE3A. And I think with that has also come the recognition of markers or cells that might be future therapeutic targets to prevent the evolution to, you know, leukemia that 20 to 30 percent of affected neonates experience. So I think that is going to be an, an important new area of study that is exploding. I think something that I touch very little in the review, but I think is, is extremely important, is that not all the differences between fetal and adult myocaricides impact platelet production. Yes, they do need to meet the needs to produce platelets and also populate the expanding bone marrow. But a lot of the differences that we see at the molecular level actually are related to the function of the platelets that ultimately leave, you know, are produced from these myocaryocytes. So I think a, a really important area is 
to understand better and better the differences between neonatal and adult platelets from the functional standpoint, and particularly beyond hemostasis in terms of the immune functions of platelets, because I think they might be important to better understand the higher mortality and morbidity that's associated when we transfuse adult platelets into neonates. And I also think because that's going to be very important when we generate in vitro-derived platelets for transfusion into adults. Dr. Solovisner, how does your research into neonatal versus adult platelets relate to the in vitro production of platelets from induced pluripotent stem cells? Are those iPS-derived megakaryocytes and platelets more similar to neonatal or adult? They are derived from embryonic stem cells, and I think there is a lot of studies that are going on right now trying to better define the product of the iPS cells. But, you know, they are derived from an an embryonic progenitor. So I think understanding those potential differences and and investigating the functional properties of those platelets and the molecular characteristics is going to be very important. This concludes our podcast. I'm excited to share this series on megakaryopoiesis with our readership and hope that you learn a significant amount about the biology of these interesting cells. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode on the megakaryopoiesis and platelet production review series. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.